You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Today on TopCast, we've got a Williams designer that started working on Williams straight out of high school in 1970, and in 1978, designed his first game, Phoenix, for Williams. And between 1978 and 1996, he designed 35 games for Williams. And his sales numbers are unbelievable, selling over 135,000 pinball games for Williams in the period from 1978 to 1996. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. So I'd like to welcome Barry Ausler to Topcast today. And uh, Gary designed some great games for Williams, including Gorgar, the first talking pinball machine, Jungle Lord, Barracora, Defender, Joust, the head-to-head game, of course, Space Shuttle, Comet, Grand Lizard, Pinbot, Fire, Space Station, Cyclone, Police Force, Jokers, Bad Cats, Hardly Davison, Doctor Who, Hurricane, Brom Stroker's Dracula, Dirty Harry, Who Done It, Jackbox, Junkyard, and and many others. Barry Osler was definitely very prolific for Williams, and again selling over a hundred and thirty-five thousand pinball games for Williams during this period. So we're going to give Barry a call right now on the phone. And uh, and have a little talk, chat with them. Hello. Hi, is Barry there? This is Barry. Barry, this is Clay. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Oh, pretty good. So, tell me how you got into pinball and and how you how you started working uh, working for Williams. I started working there the day after I graduated high school. Back in 1970, and I got a job working in the factory as a tester. What What were you testing? The I started out testing the the back boxes. You know the what do you call it? The mech panels that went inside the back boxes on the old electromechanical games. Oh, so what year was this? 1970. Oh, okay. So between 70, you know, it looks like your first game was. Uh, the 1978 Phoenix. So between 70 and 78, you were you were basically working the factory line. I worked in the factory for about two and a half years, and then I was offered a job up in engineering as a technician. So I went upstairs and I worked with uh, Norm Clark and Steve Kordek. They and, would design the games, and I would basically put all the white woods together, wire them up, and get the game all, all ready for them. Now, did you, you, you said you started working straight out of high school. Was this something that you wanted to do or just kind of fell into? Well, uh, my father was working down in uh, quality control over there, and he told me that they were looking for some help there. Down in, it, was, it was a place called the, the Sample Room where they would build like the 30 or 40 prototype games, and that's where they got me in over there. So, I mean, were you a pinball player or interested in pinball before this? Games, I always used to play every chance I got. When I, they were illegal in Chicago at the time, so anytime we went on vacations or out of the city where they had games, I'd always look for them. So was this, like, you know, just kind of a circumstantial thing that you just kind of fell into, or you really wanted to work there? 
I guess at the beginning, I think I kind of fell into it because I didn't really know what I was getting into when I started there. It was just, you know, I wanted a full-time job. And things just happened to fall into place. So then after uh, you were in the uh, in the engineering department and, and putting together the White Woods and working with Norm Clark and, and Steve Kordak, um, you know, how did how did things progress from there? Well, from there, I guess I got a little better at putting these together. I was able to start drawing up the schematics for the electromechanical games, and I had come up with an idea for a game because I noticed a couple of the other guys that were working as technicians, they gave them a shot to try designing games, and I told them I had an idea, and... They said, go ahead. Is that what ultimately became Phoenix? Right. And so that was, you know, the unique thing about Phoenix is that you've got the, in the center of the play field, you've got two singular drop targets, and, and the lanes across the top and the lanes on the two in lanes control those drop targets, raising them up. Right. And was that, that was, you know, what was the thinking behind that, and, and how did you sell that to, to management to get the job? Hard to remember everything, but I, I know we wanted different ways to make certain scores. We had to do one thing in order to earn something else. So once you knocked the targets down, you couldn't get them back up again until you went and went over the rollover lanes. Hmm. I guess they, they seemed to like the idea of that. They liked the idea of the little ramp I had on the left-hand side. Where that one shot where it kind of goes up that, that almost like the tunnel, they hit that one target. Right, I think it spelled out Phoenix. Right, right, right. Yeah, I actually, I actually own that game right now. Do you? <laughs> yeah, alright. I, I kind of tripped into it, but I, I, I really thought it was kind of a cool game myself. Mm. You know, and it was one of the early solid states. Now, how was your transition from the electromechanical stuff to the solid state? Uh, it wasn't so hard as far as the game design. It was just trying to do any repairs on it. Because I, I mean, I, I know basic electronics, but I can't really fix a circuit board, you know, try and find out what the problem is. I can repair it if somebody tells me this part's bad you need to change it. But I wouldn't know how to troubleshoot it. The mechanical games, I could do them blindfold. And was that because you were so used to putting them together in the engineering room? Right. And also what I would do in the, in the evenings and weekends, I used to work on the side repairing games for some of the operators. Because, you know, when you work in the factory, you know, they don't pay you as much money when you first start doing stuff up in engineering you don't make as much as you do as when you're designing so i got into doing that and i was probably making more money on the side now the uh the phoenix sold like slightly over six thousand games which is actually seems like a, a pretty good sales number were they pretty happy with you yeah they were and that led of course to your next game which was the the time warp correct and, and now that one sold even more. You sold 8,800 units of that one. And you, you put something on this game that was this your idea or was this management's idea or somebody else's idea to put banana flippers on that game? It wasn't really the first game. They had it on Disco Fever and they said a lot of the women like the flippers because they can cradle the ball and make back shots and other stuff with the flippers. And they wanted, management wanted those flippers on the game. I, I didn't really. So that wasn't your idea then? No. I mean, they're a nice a nice idea for doing some shots, but it's hard to make a good shot that you're aiming at, like you're aiming at, like if you had a ramp on the game or something. And then you went to, you kind of hit the, you kind of hit the ball out of the park in 19, the end of 1979 with Gorgar, the, the first talking pinball machine as it may be. Is there any stories behind that? The only story I remember 
from there, not so much how it came about, but when we had the game at the show, I don't remember if it was the AMOA show or the Acme show, the thing was so loud that Sam Stern came over to our booth and was asking us to turn it down because they couldn't hear his games. Oh, because at the time, Sam Stern, of course, was no, was now had part of his own company. Right, he had the original Stern pinball, but it used to be over on the uh, Versi Street. Right, because at one point he was management at Williams. Right. Yeah, he owned Williams at one time. Right, right. And then, so, and I forget the transition of how he came about with Stern. He bought Chicago Coin. R- right, right, right. So now, when you sold, on Gorgar, you sold like 14,000 units. I mean, they, they must have been loving you. Yeah, that was, well, I think the main thing, too, that helped it was that it was the first talking game, and Gorgar happened to come out around the time that they developed the, the sound system for it. So you mean it was purely kind of coincidence that your game ended up with the talking? I, I kind of think it is. I mean, it was a good game to play. You know, I had a the nice shot with the magnet on or something that we hadn't done on a pinball game before at Magnets. It just happened to come about that they had, you know, the, the talking system. It was, it was limited to only a few words, but no other game had it at the time. Right, yeah, seven-word voc- vocabulary. But it, it was still, it was understandable, and, and, it, and it worked. Right. Yeah, and it is a good game. It's kind of now the artwork for for Gorgar was that your idea or, or just the artist's? That was more the artist. Did you have a theme in mind? Not a hundred percent. We're trying to come up with with something for it. We wanted to make it. I wouldn't say futuristic, but something unusual. Well, you know, I don't want to use, use the word demonic because that's not what I'm what I was looking at. But that's kind of what it, what it looks like. But there was a lot of these Dungeon and Dragon type movies coming out around that time, and I think we tried to cash in on that, where the hero's trying to save the girl from from the beast. Now, on your prior games and games right around this, in generally speaking, did you did you pick the theme, or did did somebody else pick the theme? Usually, I, I would come up with with the theme or the name of the game. I mean, there, there had been like one incident maybe where somebody else had come up like on, on Laser Ball. Originally, we were calling it Williams Lanes. We were making a bowling game out of it. That's why I had the ten rollover buttons in the middle. Hmm. And we even had artwork and everything done on it. And then they decided that they didn't want to do it. They wanted a different theme. And I think somebody, I don't know, Steve Cordick or somebody came up with the name Laser Ball. Now, on, on that game, that didn't do nearly as well. As the Gorgar at 4,500 units sold, were, was there um, was that just because uh, you know there was different change in the environment, or you know it just you know you can't you can't sell a million of every game every every time? Are you referring to Laser Ball? Right, Laser Ball. So that was a wide body game too. Right. Oh, so for a wide body, that was actually pretty good sales. Right. They never sold that many of them. Right. 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 And Scorpion was also a wide body too, which came out next. Yes, it was. Now, what was there, are there any stories behind the Scorpion game? Not, not too much that I can remember. I was just trying to make just another follow-up to the last wide body that I made and just trying to do some other unusual stuff. I think back then they had, I think Atari was doing Middle Earth or it was, it might have been after that even, but we were just trying to come up with a, like a similar type of theme. Now, why were they going with the, the wide body pins opposed to the normal sized ones? What was the thinking behind that? The only thinking I can come up with really is that somebody else was doing it too and they didn't want to be left in the, in the, in the dust, you know, if it did take off. Because I know Atari was doing nothing about wide bodies at the time. 
And so the, the the competition was basically driving that horse. Right, and I think Dally was doing wide bodies. So if you if you don't do one and the, and the games do well, then you're going to be the last one. Right now, how did you feel about the wide body theme? It it was good if it was done right. Like when I did laser ball, I kind of laid it out like a narrow body game and had other stuff along the sides, so the game would would play like a small game. But some of them were so wide that it just took too, took too long for the ball to do anything. There's just a lot of open dead space. In 1981, um, Jungle Lord came out, and there was um, a thing where the the cabinet was available. Or first, I guess it first came out, I guess, as a red cabinet, and then it switched to a blue. What was the story behind that? I think that was mostly just because they, they just didn't like the color. I don't know if it just didn't test well, or somebody in management didn't like it. It just did, didn't look look right. So that was nothing that you that you were determining there. No, no. Sometimes they'll make a couple different sample color cabinets, and if they don't like it, they'll go and switch it. Salespeople involved, the marketing people, and the you know designers, and somebody says that you know they don't like it. Well, you know, take like a vote on it then. Prior to to Jungle Lord, who who was doing most of the programming for your games? Different people. Well, I know Eugene Jarvis and Larry Demar were doing programming before they got into the video. So anything up until like 1980. Uh, Trying to think who else was there. There was a guy named Randy Pfeiffer. I know he did some programming for us. Did you have a particular programmer that you really liked to work with? Well, late, later on we did when, like when uh, Bill Futzenreuter was programming, and you know some of the, some of the later guys, you know Dwight Sullivan, the people that are, that are still around doing it. But in in, that, in the past, there were, the programming really wasn't as complicated as it is now. Right, so it was, it was, it didn't make that much difference really who did it. Right. Solar Fire sold just, uh, you know, uh, you know, like a little, almost 800 units. What, what was the deal with that game? Why, why did sales not do so well on that one? With that, it was probably because of the, the timing on it when Defender had come out and some of the other, all the other video games were getting really hot and everything in the early 80s was just like completely dead from like 81 to 85. And you're lucky to sell 2,000 games of anything. And I think Solar Fire was one of my best layouts. Action it had you know a two-level play field on it. A lot, yeah. lot to shoot at on it, a lot of rules. Yeah, it's kind of a cool game. Mm-hmm. Was Solar Fire? Did they ever consider having that having speech for in Solar Fire at all? Not that I recall. I don't. I don't remember them ever putting it in there at the time. And where did that theme come from? I, don't know, I just kind of came up with it. You know, I just wanted to do something. You know, sci- what do you want to call it, like sci-fi. You did a lot of, like, the, the space and, and kind of sci-fi, th- you know, um, themes. You, you, you really liked those, eh? Yeah, I, I kind of did, yeah. Okay. Did you, when you were growing up, were you like a comic, bo- a comic book person or anything? Oh, yeah, I liked those. I used to like you know, whatever sci-fi I can find, which was a little harder back then, except for the old B-movies. The one that uh, people really like as far as the artwork goes was the, the Barracora or Barracuda, I guess, was the original name? Yeah, I guess it was like a, a cross between a woman and a, and a fish, if you kind of look at the creature. So they end up, we end up calling it Barracora. Like, her name would be Cora and the Barracuda. That game originally was laid out by uh, Roger Sharp and Steve Epstein, and the layout, I guess, wasn't as good as they wanted, so they wanted me to help them with it. So I just took it and just relayed out the whole play field, made a whole new, whole new drawing for it. We kind of touched on that um, 
that the game actually came from Roger Sharp, and then you kind of like finished it up. Is that is that what you were saying? Yeah, Roger Sharp and Steve Epstein had drawn up a play field, you know, years ago, back before Barracora, and I'm I basically took a little bit of what they had and just redesigned the whole game, came up with a whole new play field for it. So did they, you couldn't you incorporate their uh, their ideas or their design at all? Right, there might have been a little bit of it in there. I don't ha- have a copy of the old drawing. I wish I did to make a comparison, but there were, there were a lot of changes made on it. Did that game ever, was it ever meant to have speech? Don't think so. Did it take a, a longer or shorter amount of time to develop that? I mean, you know, because of the the Roger Sharp and the, and the Epstein involvement, did that make things easier or harder? It didn't really take that much longer because back then the play fields were a lot easier to do. They didn't have any, any toys on there like they have now, you know, or anything that we made back in the 90s. Those games back there, I mean, that's the word about mechanisms. I can draw a play field up in, in two or three days. One that you that you put together that di- that didn't get ever get sold was the Spellbinder, which I guess was like uh, uh, maybe the mate to Hyperball. You know, it really wasn't a pinball game; it was more of a gun game in a pinball right, it was cabinet. A hyperball. Yeah. So what what was the story with that? Why didn't that ever get made? I mean, they only made I think like ten of them. The game played real well, but I guess Hyperball kind of kind of crashed. They were having a lot of trouble, you know, with the ball feeder on there, and the things were breaking down a lot, and it just didn't do as well as they thought it would do. So then they kind of took it and put it on the shelf. So what was the difference between Spellbinder and, and Hyperball and, and gameplay? Basically, the rules that we had on there. What I did is I had different shots. You had to do things that were different than a Hyperball. And on the back, I did, remember like the bear used to shoot out in the old gun games? We did it with a dragon where you'd have to hit it before it got off to the edge of the site. If you hit it, it would keep going back and forth. Hyperball was just like shooting at flashing lights, and that was it. One game that you did was in 1982, the end of 1982, was Defender, and I understand that you worked on that with Joe Camico. Right. Uh, the, I think Joe, Joe and I, I can't remember if Larry was involved or not, but he wanted to do a Defender pinball, so I came up and did the actual playfield drawing for it, and Joe helped out with, with the rules and some of the other things on the game to make it as close as we could to the actual you know, to the way the video game played. And how was it working with Joe? It was it was pretty good. I mean, he had, he had a lot of ideas, and he was good at, at getting things done. Like if he needed to get a license for a game or something, he was he was able to find the right people to do it. Of course, he would. How long had he been had he been at Williams at that time? I want to say it could have been more more than a couple of years at the most, if that long. Because I think he left there after Space Shuttle, like eighty five, eighty six, or something. And I, I know he'd only been there for for a few years. What was the deal with uh, you know another one that that kind of got that didn't get made was um, was Rat Race with uh, with Steve Kordak. Was there any stories with that? It, I think the game might have been ahead of its time. We were trying to cash in on on the novelty craze because you know, pinball was still kind of quiet around that time, and I was trying different things. I was doing that, you know, any kind of game that was maybe close to pinball, but not quite a pinball that maybe we can use in place of some of the arcade games that were out there. And one of the mechanical engineers that worked there came up with a mechanism that he was using that you can tilt things back and forth like the old laboratories they had. And I decided to develop it into a game. So we put joysticks on it to control it. We had a couple of motors so you can go on an XY axis with this thing and try and guide the ball through a maze. And I mean, everybody loved the game, but... For some reason, it, it just didn't take off. 
Now, what was uh, Kordak's involvement with that? Uh, not a lot that I can remember. I mean, he, he was supportive with it, but just about the whole design on it was, was mine as far as the play field and the mechanical engineer did the actual mechanism that went underneath it. I remember his name was Doug, but I can't remember his last name. Another one that was really pretty cool that might have been ahead of its time was uh, the head-to-head game Joust, which was really, really kind of a wild game. I mean, that that was your... Uh, how did that come about? That I wanted to do a game that was basically based on the Joust video game, because in that game you're, you're playing two people, you know, constantly head-to-head on that game, and I wanted to see if I could do a pinball that was like that. And it was great if you had two people playing, but... When one person played, you had to operate both sets of flippers, and it was a lot more difficult for anybody to do that. And you think that's what held the sales back? Probably. Plus, I think a lot of people felt it wasn't really a true pinball game because it didn't have the back box on there and some of the other features. Well, then in uh, 1984, uh, of course, y- you hit another one out of the park with, uh, with Space Shuttle. Um, give, me the, uh, give me the background on that game. What happened with that was that was a game that originally that was Joe Kamenkow and Larry DeMar had come up with a a layout for a playfield. I think they drew it on a placemat in a restaurant. And, you know, I said, fine, we'll, we'll draw it up just like you've got it. We'll, we'll, you know, build a game and see how it plays. And it just didn't work out as well as they had hoped. So that was another one sort of like Barracora where I took it and redrew the whole thing and made a whole, whole different playfield layout. Was it really a lot different than what they first came up with? Yeah, it was a, it was a lot lot different. I wish I had kept the original drawing. Oh, so that placemat's long gone, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you, you could have seen the difference. Now, who, did you have to... to contact NASA and get us everything we needed, you know, pictures and permission to do the whole thing. So you had to actually license that with NASA? Right. I don't know if we actually paid them or not. That That I'm not sure, but I know we had to have permission. To do it. When that one sold, you know, that, that sold like 7,000 units, they must have, you know, and prior to that, you know, not since Jungle Lord in 81 had really any pinball machine sold any kind of substantial numbers. Right. They'd given us an ultimatum. What they did was, before that game was produced, they went and looked at all the games that we were developing at the time, and they came down with whatever game we pick has to make, has to make it big this time, otherwise we're going to shut down pinball. That's that's where it ended up. So they decided to go with space shuttle because I already had uh, Starlight done before space shuttle, and I think Mark Ritchie had something going, Steve Ritchie had something going, but I guess they weren't far enough along, and they liked this game enough to give it a shot. And the rest was history. I guess it it, it worked. <laughs> do you think that the um, the space shuttle theme really really helped with it, or do you think it was just the you know the basic game rules and game design that really sold it, or just a combination of everything? I think it's a combination. I mean, the theme helped it a lot. Plus, it was the first game we had with you know plastic ramps on there, and we put a little model space shuttle on there. There weren't too many toys on the previous games until till then. And then the next one that you did that went that you sold really well on another one that you hit out of the park was, of course, Comet. And that one you were working with uh, with Python on. Right. Was there was this the the, was that the first game you worked with Python? I believe I believe so. Yeah. How, how was it working with him? It was an experience. I mean, Python's a great guy. You know, he's a little strange, but he's he's really good. He's really talented. You know, he, know, he knows what he's doing. Now, was he doing the uh, helping with playfield design, or was he doing the art, or a little of both? 
he was doing the artwork. In some of the later games, he was he would come up with themes, and sometimes I would actually build the game around the theme. This game originally, Comet, was originally called Riverview. I don't know if, if you're familiar with Chicago, with the amusement park that used to be here. Right, right, the Riverview. Yeah, it was right across right across the river from where Williams is. And I had originally called it Riverview and, and designed all the different rides on it. The Comet was a ride at Riverview, and they had, you know, the Dunk, the Dummy, and all the other different different rides that I had on there. And then we decided that not enough people around the world know what Riverview is. You know, somebody in Europe wouldn't know what it was, so we decided just to give it a different name, so I named it after one of the rides. The artwork, you know, on, on Comet, uh, I mean, was there, did you give any direction there, or was that just Python, all, all him? That we kind of just let Python go wild with it. You know, I gave him an amusement park theme with all the different rides, and just, you know, come up with something good to go with it. That's where you put all the little people on the play field looking up at everything, and the back class with the different characters and some celebrities in, you know, in the back of the roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, that one, that game did, that game did really well. I mean, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people, I mean, look for that game till today. Mm-hmm. You know. It's one of the first games they said the two that a lot, it was like equally played by men and women. In the past, it seemed like Timbo was mostly a man's game or, or young guys would be playing it, but this game, young people, old people, women, everybody was, was playing the game. And I tried to make lighter based themes while some of the other guys that were designing were doing some of the real macho games, but they kind of, Kept certain people away from them, though. Oh, you mean that some, certain people got steered towards certain themes? Right. The Steve Ritchies of the world got, like, the macho stuff. Right, you know, he's got the, the Black Knight or some other, you know, big tough guy on their high speed. Which, I mean, they, those games are both great, and they did really well. And I was trying to make something that was more universal that everybody could enjoy. You know, not just try and aim it at one at one group. And, and speaking of which, on the on the space shuttle, I mean, do you... In your opinion, do you you know a lot, you hear a lot of people say that was the game that saved Williams. I mean, is is that kind of how you read it too? Well, that's what, what everybody was saying. I mean, I guess whatever game they put out, if it, I mean, if another game had been put out and that game did well, that would have been called the game that saved it. That just happened to be the game that they picked. You know, I, I can't say what the other games would have done. Right. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> yeah, and it sure did work. Yeah, at least we got another you know ten, twelve years out of, out of Williams. Right, right. So were they serious about shutting it down? Yeah, they said they were. Boy, that would have changed a whole bunch of stuff, huh? I know. Because, I mean, nothing was selling more than maybe 2,000 games if you were lucky up until that point. Tell me about Grand Grand Lizard. You know, how did that game come about? Grand Lizard was, I guess I kind of did that as a filler game. I basically took Solar Fire, since it didn't do as well as I wanted, I took the whole Solar Fire game and, and made it into a single-level game. And if you look, if you look at the layout on it, it's real similar with all the shots and everything on it, except it's, it's a single play field. And then we came up with some new idea of putting these wire cages on it to launch the ball so you can get the ball up over different areas right off the shot to make up the difference on it. And we had uh, Paul Ferris do some artwork on it. And Python originally came, did the, the lizard head on there. He's the one that like sculpted the original head. And then what did they, what did he sculpts the head and then they sent it out to get it molded? Right, well he came up basically like the drawing for it. Then there was this other guy named Jerry Pinsler who used to do all of our, our, not really molds, but he would come up like our actual sculptures and he would take it and he made the actual sculpture for us. And then they do what they make a mold off of that. 
The next one that that you really was a big home run was, of course, Pinbot, and you did that one, I guess, with Python. Yeah, that's when I Python and I worked together. Python came up with a crazy drawing for a robot with with flipper fingers and different other little crazy ideas on there, and I took his actual artwork drawing and made a game out of it. I took what he had on there. He had, you know, like the robot with the visor and the eyeballs, and I had the idea of putting a target bank in front of something that I had designed. So we kind of use that like as his teeth, where you basically hit him in the teeth and it drops down, the visor opens up. He had that little corkscrew. He had something on the side, and I worked on that with Joe Jost to try and get a skill shot out of it. But but it was like Python's original artwork drawing that I I had worked on in order to make this whole thing work. And then what is and then that was programmed by I think Larry Demar. Uh, no, I think it was Foots. Okay, now, now you, yeah, you've seen that. Um, Bill and Python seem to be kind of a team. Mm-hmm. Was that by invention or was that just how it worked? Well, certain times you wanted certain people on your team to work on a, on a game, something like that. What, what do you mean? You know, when you got a game where you think it's going to be really great, you want to try and get the, per, the program you think is the best that you can get to work on it. And plus, Bill worked well with Python. I worked well with Python. You know, so there's certain people sometimes that, that can't work together. Certain people didn't want to work with Python, or certain people maybe didn't want to work with a, a different programmer. But the three of us seemed, seemed to click pretty well. Was Python really his first name? Yes, his name is Python Vladimir Angelo. Yeah, man, you, I, we got to have some words with his mother. <laughs> he's a very unusual person, but I tell you, he's very, very smart. <laughs> right now, what was there any interesting stories working with Python? I, I heard he was a little, a little wild. Yeah, he was pretty wild. I mean, he, he he would be working on a project with us, and he would disappear for a week, two weeks at a time. And just come up with some big story when he came back. You know, I was off on safari with National Geographic or whatever, whatever he'd come up with. And then we'd have, we'd be like three days from our deadline and then he'd work for three or four days straight to get the artwork done. So he never missed a deadline? Not that I remember. I mean, he got it done, but he, it was like, he, he worked better under pressure. If you gave him three months, he'd wait, you know, two months and 20, 27 days before he'd start on it. Hmm. Yeah, I bet that drove some people crazy. Oh, yeah, because especially with management, they want to see something. They want to see a sketch. They want to see something on it to see if it's, you know, how it's going to look, if it's going to work. They don't want something thrown at them and say, oh, well, we're forced to do it now. <laughs> now, uh, whose idea was it to come up with the fire pinball? That seemed like a kind of a cool theme. That was something I worked out with Mark Springer. I can't remember if he came up with the fire theme or if I came up with it. He came up with the idea of doing... It is like an old period piece, like a Chicago fire from you know the 1800s. And whose idea was it to put the, the the cow thing in there? That was one of the programmers. I don't know where they got that from. They started putting cows in every single game we made, starting right around that time. Or every even Doctor Who, any game you make certain shots on there, you start getting getting these moo sounds. It was some kind of like a joke that they had done in there, but you only get it at certain times. So that was the programmers that were doing that, but. It was, but the cow in this game kind of fit because we kind of loosely based it on the Chicago Fire when they always had a cow kicked over the lamp. Right. So it kind of fit in with this. Now, why the Fire Champagne Edition? That was back when the, we used to call them fern bars, were real popular. 
you know, like, you know, the Bennigan's type restaurants where the people would sit there with the brass rails and they'd be having their drinks and they wanted something that looked like a piece of furniture that, that they would put in some of these places that you wouldn't normally get a pinball machine. So was this a request by some of the distributors? I think it was more management. They, you know, unless somebody said something to them that I'm not aware of, but they wanted to make like a few hundred of these pieces and if they worked out, they might even make more of them. And basically the cabinet had like gold rails and an oak type look to it. And I guess you had some mechanical animation in the back box that wasn't in the standard fire. Right. We had the, the legs were like brass plated. The armor was brass plated. You know, we had the brass bell up on top. And then remember in the play field you had the little rotating lights? We had two of them in the back box in addition to it. Like right around the score displays or something, right? There were two, two of them back there. Yeah, were they like above the displays or something? Uh... Yeah, yeah. Cause, well, the displays were in, were down at the bottom, but between the speakers, they were like right behind the horses. There's like one on the left side, one on the right side. I don't know if you have a picture in front of you or, or your computer in front of you or anything. I'm just kind of going by memory. Yeah. You know, I I I own that game um for a long time, and um due to space constraints, I I got rid of it. Um, the one thing that was funky on that game for me personally is it it had no pop bumpers. Hmm. You know, I thought, I thought that was really unusual, you know, because pop bumpers and slingshots were like the, pop bumpers, slingshots, and flippers were like the three mainstay things of, of pinball machines from the beginning of, you know, uh, the end of World War II. So it seemed, it was, it was kind of odd that it didn't have any. Right. I was trying to do something different with the game. I wanted to make it like you're actually fighting fires, and if you didn't put them out fast enough, the fires would start spreading. You know, you have to hit the, if there's three targets flashing, you have to hit those targets before a fourth one catches on or a fifth one. So there really wasn't room for the jet bumpers because I wanted some other different features in the back end over there. The space station game, uh, who's, uh, was that your theme or somebody else's? That, that was mine. Now, why space station? I wanted to do it as a sequel to space shuttle. It's something else, you know, to make it a lot different. Plus, they're always talking about building the International Space Station. So I was trying to, you know, like catch up with the themes on it like we do with space shuttle. We got it out when it was popular, and this is when... The space station was becoming popular. There were three number 1251 flash lamps that essentially kind of stay on in the in the back box during uh, or, or in, on the game during um, during gameplay. Is that it, was that by design or what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, we did a delivery. We just wanted the backlash to pop out more than than what normal lights on there. You know, had a few more hot spots like in the in the tail of the space shuttle that was flying up there and you know, around the space station. We just wanted it to stand out more. Okay, now, and what about the um, uh, the lack of any um, uh, in-lanes on this game, which kind of seems unusual for games of that time? Was there What was the thinking behind that? Well, that I just wanted to make some more shots at the bottom of the plate, though, which you normally couldn't have, because if you put, you know, double lanes on both sides and put the slingshot kickers in there, you can't shoot as far down on there. So what I did to compensate is I put two kickers on on either side to return the ball back into play if you had them lit. How did you think that that worked out? I thought it worked out pretty good. I mean, we tried to develop a mechanism in there so we at least we had like a, a little space sh- space station that would actually move and send the ball to different shots when you make it, depending on w- what position it was in. I don't remember exactly what the numbers were on it. Yeah, it sold about thirty eight hundred or so, but I, I mean, which was probably pretty decent for the time. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was nothing compared to what 
you came out with next, which was Cyclone, and again that was with with Bill and Python, and that game sold you know over nine thousand units, and and that was another home run. Mm-hmm. You know anything now? Why why Cyclone? Well, I I like the way the Comet theme you know was received, so I wanted to do another, I guess, uh, amusement park theme. And I was, you know, kind of in the roller coasters because I spent all my childhood going to Riverview and all the different local amusement parks, and the themes always seemed to work out pretty good. So I tried to make a whole different layout now, put some different features on there. I think that was when I had the Ferris wheel on, and I had some different ramp shots and just you know, other crazy stuff on there. The the wheel, the like the Wheel of Fortune in the back box. We had just gotten into stepper motors, and I wanted to find some way of putting that into the game. So that we have to be some kind of a, like a random thing in the game where somebody has a chance of getting something that maybe isn't that good of a player. Hmm. And now Python, did he help out much with that or did he just do the art? Uh, that one was more my idea, but he came up with all the crazy ideas for the artwork, but the actual mechanical playfield layout was mine on that one. His main one was when he came up with, with Pinbot, where I kind of designed it around his artwork. This one, he designed the artwork around, more around the game. But I had a theme ahead of time. And back in the old days, when we started doing games like in the early 70s and 80s, we would just develop a game and come up with, with a theme for it later on and put artwork on it. But as time went on, we started actually designing games around the theme. So it, it, you know, it fit together better. Now, whose idea was it to, uh, to put the celebrities on the back class on that one? That was Python. Did he get, did, I mean, did, was there any, uh, repercussions to that? Not really, cause that, that one was, I think, was that the one with the Reagans on it? Yeah, exactly. Right, and he was president, and I mean, they, they make political cartoons with the presidents all the time, so, you know, without any problems. So we figured it, you know, I, I don't know what, what the word is that they use for it, but, you know, like public domain or whatever it is. Right, and now, the management didn't have any problems with that either? No. Now, was there anybody in the in the in the cars in the you know in the the taxi? Pardon me. I said they, if there was any problems, they would have changed it, like they had to do with taxi when they had Marilyn Monroe on there. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember they had to change it from you know Marilyn to somebody that yeah, didn't have blonde hair, making her a brunette and calling her Lola or something else. Right. Because I guess her estate, the people were complaining about it. They didn't want her likeness on the game. We're going to take a short break talking with Barry Ausler, the Williams Pinball Designer, and we'll be back in just a moment. The Pin Game Journal is a proud sponsor of TopCast. It covers pinball like no other publication can. The Pin Game Journal is America's only pinball publication. Whether you're looking for new games or the classics, reports on industry shows or collector expos, insights on a game you want or features to help you fix the game you've got, Pin Game Journal is for you. Their website is at pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with Barry Ausler, the Williams Pinball Designer. Now, when you did these games, did you did you keep any of these games for your own collection? I had a lot of games. I think starting with Space Shuttle, I, I had gotten one of every game that I had designed, but then I ended up selling them a couple of years after I was let go over at Williams. So you must have had a pretty good collection then. About 12, 13 games at one time. There are a couple people that there, there's likenesses of them, but not exactly on that thing. I think one guy in there was supposed to look, I think, like a little bit like Harold Washington, that used to be the mayor of Chicago. But the other people, it's not really anybody from here. 
I think on comedy, he had a few few other people that looked like different celebrities. So now the next game he came out with was was Jokers, and that game again was with Python, and it used stereo sound. What was the story behind that? That was, I think they just changed their soundboard, so we're able to get a little better sound effects where they can actually you know work it like a left channel and right channel where you can make you know the sounds come out differently on there. You can make the left speaker talk, make the right speaker talk separately. And did you think that worked out pretty well in Jokers? I think it worked out pretty good because, I mean, they had some pretty good speech in there. It was, it was kind of a, f- a funny theme, too. Yeah, it was kind of, it's a good game. I see a lot of them, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm kind of a, a poker fanatic. I've been playing poker all my life. So I wanted to do a card game, and then Python came up with all, all this artwork to go with it. And we, we used the wheel in there that we had from uh from Cyclone. And we used that in there to help to help deal cards up for like a special hand. Now on Police Force you worked with Mark Ritchie and Python on that. Was there any stories behind that game? Uh that game originally wasn't Police Force, it was gonna be Batman. But I think there were some delays with the movie or some problems getting the license and we had to come up we had a game all ready to go. They had we had all the artwork done, ready to screen the playfields and we were told we had to change it, so we came up with a different theme. So instead of having a Batmobile, we used it as a police car, and the spell-out sound, like the police spell-out, I think originally was Batman. So we, did, we had to come up with all new artwork for it and new rules. Now, when something like that happens, does that really put a damper on the project? It can. You know, I mean, it, 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 sometimes it can really throw you off and screw you up on there, but... This one, I mean, we seem to still get the game out in, in pretty much record time. I think the one that hurt the most, I think, was, was Python because he had to redo all his artwork. When you were trying to get the Batman theme, was this prior to any of the Batman movies? This was right around the time that the first Batman movie came out. I'm trying to think what year that was. Well, the game came out in 1989. I, I don't remember. The movie was out around that time, 88, 89, somewhere around that time. Yeah, because it seemed to me that Data East got that theme, but I, it was more like in 91 or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was tied in with the second movie. You know, Michael Keaton, what did he do, two or three movies? You know, I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with, with the Batman right, theme. This was with the first, very first one they did. But you couldn't, you just couldn't get that license, huh? Right. Or, or there was a delay with the movie. There was, there was something that, that kept us from it. I'm thinking it had something to do with the license. Now, what was Mark Ritchie's involvement with this game? We both kind of came up with, with the ideas, what we wanted. You know, we came up, he came up with like part of the playfield layout. I came up with part of the layout. Then I drew it up. And Mark and I and I think Bill Footson might have worked on that one too with this. And also Python. And we all worked on, on the rules together for it. Now the next one he came out with was uh, Bad Cats, which was kind of an interesting game. Single ball, not a multi-ball game. And it had uh, really kind of cool animation in the in the back box. Any stories behind that game? That was something that Python came up with that one too. He always had something, something unusual that he that he wanted to do on the game, and this one he had the idea with the woman swinging the the broom, swatting the cat, and the cat would spin around. We took, I think it's another one where we used the stepper motor in there that that was used on Jokers and on Cyclone. Kind of a cool game, uh, you know, really interesting looking. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, Py- I guess that's Python again, huh? Yeah, it was. I had one of those games, and I ended up selling it years ago uh, to, who was it? I think it was the lead singer or the drummer from Motley Crue. 
they, they were they were looking for a game, and somebody I know, I guess, knew them, and I and he knew that I had a game, and we ended, I ended up selling it to him. Now, why would he want that game? I guess they liked the game for some reason. You know, maybe they thought they were bad cats. You know. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. I think it was the singer. But I can't I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Was there ever? Um, I mean, that was like a not a multi-ball game. Was there? Why? Why did that game go with just a single single ball instead of multi-ball? Uh, the way I wanted to do it, like I did with uh, Cyclone and Comet. Yeah, I just was more you know interested in, in the gameplay than having to have multi-ball on it. You know. So there wasn't any pressure from from anybody to say, "Hey, most of our games are multi-ball." You know, that you didn't get that any of that any of that kind of pressure. No, because I I did a lot of games like that. Even while other games were multi-ball, every once in a while I do a single ball game, then I do multi-ball. Kind of like alternate back and forth. Did you find that the that the single ball games you know were were harder or easier to design? It wasn't really any easier. I mean, because you had to compensate by having the rules you know be a little more complicated on the games. Now the next one uh, that you did was uh, the Harley Davidson game, and that one seemed um, almost like the Gottlieb, um, you know, street level games where there weren't any ramps. It, it seemed, you know, fairly simple. How, how did that game work come about? Yeah, that's pr- pretty much what they wanted to do because Gottlieb had out Silver Slugger, and that was back when games were starting to slow down again, and they wanted to make a game that was a little bit less expensive to make that they can, you know, sell to people with very low maintenance. Because all the other games had so many mechanisms on, the games would break down, people would be fixing them every other day. But this one had hardly any moving parts other than the bumpers and the kickers on it. How did you think that game came out? I thought it came out pretty good because we worked hard on the rules. I worked on that with, with Mark Springer, and we both, Harley Davidson playing up in Milwaukee, you know, took some pictures, talked to people there, and just came up with some ideas what to do with it. And we decided to make it a cross-country trip where you're hitting all these cities along the way. Were the Harley Davidson a hard license to work with? Uh, really, we, we didn't really have any problems with them. They just had to, to approve what we did, though. Once we got all the artwork done, we had to submit it to them before we can do anything to make sure that they approve with the way the art, artwork, I guess, would portray them. And there, there really weren't that many revisions on there after they looked at it. And the next one you came out with in 91 was uh, Hurricane, and that was your first game with a dot matrix display and also art by John Yowsey. Um, any stories behind that game? That one, I think Python was already had already left Williams, if I remember correctly, because he didn't do that much on that game, even though he worked on the on the first two Carnival games. And I, I just wanted to do a, a, a trilogy and do a, a third theme, you know, whatever I call like a, I guess a Carnival theme, like like the other ones were amusement park theme. And we used John Yalsey, who who had done some artwork for. I think for Pat Lawler and a couple other guys there originally. So the Hurricane was the the trilogy uh, of the kind of the roller coaster games. Was Hurricane based on any particular amusement park? Not that one really. I just tried to come up with a with a, a clever, I guess like roller coaster. The roller coasters were always the main thing, and I tried to come up with a clever roller coaster name. And I I'd gotten some different books. So he had books on Riverview and books on other places that had. Roller coasters, and there was there was one called a hurricane. And the name kind of caught my eye, so I decided to use that name on there. Then I developed, I took the Ferris wheel and decided to make it into a double Ferris wheel. Because I remember seeing one, I don't, at some place at a carnival one time, there was a double decker Ferris wheel where these things would be one spinning on the bottom and one spinning up above with a shaft in between them, and they would alternate places. 
instead of being at the top of the Ferris wheel, you'd be at the top of a second Ferris wheel. So I tried to use something like that, except I didn't really have the height to do it. So I kind of put them side by side, where one one would feed the other one. And how did you think that game uh, was received? It was fairly well, but I'm thinking that was around the time that they were making Adam's Family, so it didn't do as well as it could because of the games that were coming out, you know, right around the same time. Did you like the dot matrix display? Yeah, I thought it was pretty clever because you can do a lot with it now. Instead of just having scores on it, they can actually put an animation on it. We can put little miniature video games into the game. You know, if you do certain certain things on it, you can get a little video mode. We we started putting into the games. What did you think? Did you like the video modes? Uh, there were a couple of them that were good. Not all of them. You know, I mean, a lot, a lot of them were, were just either very simple or a waste of time. But I mean, it was a little break. That if you did something really well in the game, you, you get a little 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 break. You know, to sit down and relax for a second. The next one they came out with was was Doctor Who. And now, how did that license come about? That one. I was a, a big fan of Doctor Who, and Bill Futzenreuter was a big fan, and he wanted to, I guess, try and design his own game. You know, they were, they were going to give him a chance. He was doing mostly this programming, and he thought he could do the whole game himself, and he made up like a rough play field layout, and I guess he was running into a lot of problems with it, so I joined up with him and, and redid the whole layout and tried to keep some of what he had on there. And then I kind of added on to what I had done on Pinbot before with the visor that went up and down, decided to put a, a three-level into there where you have a little play field on top, then you have the, the target you hit when it's up, and then when it's up all the way, there's like three little trap doors in there. So we kind of worked on this whole thing together. It was kind of a, a joint, I guess a joint design. Yeah, that that moving, um, I don't know if you want to call it the elevator or whatever, that was, that was really well done. I. I thought that was pretty cool because you lock the two balls, then it moves up and you hit the set of targets, then it moves up again and you drop the balls inside. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, the one thing that was really always kind of uh, scares me about that game is whenever I take the top glass off. Right. You know, you get that message, keep your hands and fingers away from the meat slicer. <laughs> I know. We, we used to have different names for that thing. You know, we are calling it La, La Machine or the, the food processor. Because, I mean, if you did put something in there when it was going up and down, it, w- it would snap a pencil. That's why we put a, a safety switch on it. So if some guy was working on it and there was a kid in the arcade and stuck his fingers in there, we didn't want him getting his fingers chopped off. Did you ever get any stories that where that actually happened or something, or somebody got hurt by it? I haven't heard anything. I mean, if, you, if, you, if the glass is off or the front door is open, the, the playfield won't move. Right, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> right, because, I mean, you're always hearing about these different lawsuits for every little thing. You know, there's always some... Some dummy who's going to think that, well, I can do this. I'm not going to get hurt. Now, how did management feel about that that whole apparatus? That thing had to be expensive to make. It was quite expensive, but I made that the main feature on the game. If you notice, there's not too many other moving parts on there except for a couple of ball poppers. You know, you've got some bumpers and a couple of kickers and your, and your flippers. You know, some other games might have three or four different gadgets. We decided to put it all into one big gadget. But it, it did a lot of different things. It was like three different toys in one. Now, whose idea was it to put the lightning flippers on, which are about just a little bit a smidget shorter than the standard flippers? That, I think, was kind of a mutual thing because they want they were trying to keep the ball time down in some of the games because, I guess, some of the, the operators and 
other people were complaining that the games weren't making as much money as they'd like, so we tried to shorten the ball time a little bit on there by putting those slippers on there, which it did the job. And, and other things, too, with those slippers is they don't flex as much as the other ones. So you, you can make some of the shots better. You just can't make certain shots if they're way off to the side as easily. So you didn't see them as a, as a bad thing at all then? No. The banana flippers, like like I said back on uh, on Time Warp, now that was something different. That I didn't really like that much, but management wanted them on there. These, I didn't really mind the shorter flippers on there. But when you designed the game, the game was designed with normal flippers, right? Right, originally. Right, and then they, they just kind of added these on kind of at the end? Well, before we ever really put them on a test, we'd, we'd just build one game and we, we would play it and kind of determine what, what we should do with the rest of them. So we tried with the shorter flippers, and the shots are a lot stronger with, with these shorter flippers, just that some of the, the shots that are way off to the far right or far left, they're a little harder to make. But you have a little better control with these flippers. And it does keep the ball time down. So was everybody pretty much pretty happy with the Doctor Who? Yeah, I, I think they were. Now, what about the uh, the Dalek thing on the on the top? That was originally animated, right? Right. The original, I think, the first ten games or so we had that on there, where when the Dalek talked, the head would swing back and forth as it was talking, just like it did on the Doctor Who TV show. But then they decided to cut some of the cost back on the game. Do you think that was a detriment to the game? I don't think it really hurts because, I mean, the game sold pretty well. I think it sold like like 8,000 or so, didn't it? Um, yeah, it sold almost 8,000. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it did really well. That was the, my first, um, Doctor Who was my first Williams, um, uh, dot matrix game that I ever bought. Mm. You know, and, and I, I thought it was a great game. It just, I had never even heard of Doctor Who before at the time. So it was kind of a, I, I didn't know what Doctor Who was. Well, uh, I mean, that, that's been around since the early 60s. Very old. I mean, it was on TV for like 30 years. I must have missed it. Over here, I think it didn't come around here until like the 80s. Yeah, I must have missed that whole Doctor Who thing because I didn't have a clue what it was. And my, it turns out my sister was a big Doctor Who fan and she kind of like, you know, informed me of what it was. Oh yeah, I've seen every episode. Right. So you, so you were a huge fan of Doctor Who then? I was too, so that's why I I didn't mind working on this with, with, with Foots. Now, Linda Deal did the artwork. Was this like your first experience with her? Uh, yeah, it was the first first game I worked on with Linda. She she had been there for a little while, but it was the actual game, first game I worked on with her. And this seemed to work out pretty good for her because her artwork was more lighthearted. This seemed to, to fit, you know, what what she was doing, you know, more than I than I would have Python or somebody else do it. Yeah. Now the next game is one that's really dark, but it, it's really a cool game. Is the uh, Brom Stroker's Dracula? How did, did was that a theme that you wanted to do? That one, uh, I don't remember, I don't remember who the movie studio, I don't know if it was Columbia or who the studio was. They, they, they approached us with the theme because I guess they knew we were starting to do other games, like we had done Indiana Jones and some other movie themes, and they wanted to know if we were interested in, in licensing, you know, that particular product, and not, and I grabbed it up and designed a game around it. I kind of worked on that with Mark Springer. We ended up getting the copies of the script, and we got some still shots, and they gave us some, some speech from the actual movie. So we try to tie it in with the actual movie release, but I, I did I did want to do it because what happened originally it wasn't Dracula. Originally it was it was going to be tied in with the Alien Three movie that was coming out at, at the time, 
and they decided to rewrite the whole movie. I mean, I had the game all laid out as, as being aliens, and when they had the moving ball on the playfield, it was tied in with the alien theme originally. And what they did was they just completely rewrote the script and changed the movie for aliens, and it wasn't time, and I had the game ready. We needed to build something, and they happened to come up with the Dracula theme, so I just kind of changed it over and made a few adjustments on there and made it actually fit in with it. So who did that, that must have impacted, obviously, the art, but it must have also impacted the programmers, too. Uh, not not as much, because a lot of the stuff was on there and programmed. You know, we had a lot of the rules in there. We just changed what we called them. But as far as what the game actually did, it, you know, it was still pretty, you know, pretty close to the same. Now, how was the missed multiball thing incorporated into the alien thing? Don't remember exactly what I was doing with the with the alien because it never really got to that point. I think that was something I was just developing right around the time we when we had changed it. I'd come up with some crazy idea because people were always telling us there's magnets on the games that move the balls, so I decided to put a magnet on it and actually move the ball. Except I wanted to make it do do, do more than just that, so we ended up putting a little infrared beam on there where the ball would be sitting on the beam while it's moving across, and if you knock it off. You start a multi-ball and get double score or triple score or whatever it's doing. Yeah, it was really a cool effect. I mean, it's basically like a genie garage door opener underneath the play field with a magnet attached to it that, that drives the ball across, and you're trying to knock the ball off the magnet during multi-ball. Mm-hmm. You know, really, really imaginative. I, it's one of the coolest toys I've ever seen implemented into a pinball machine. A really enjoyable thing to, you know, I mean, it's like whenever I play that game, it's like, man, i got to get Miss Multiball. i got to see it do that. I know. it, And we had, three, like, three different multiball features in that game. And if you got all three of them going, you'll get, like, a super multiball, and the points would, you know, be, like, I don't know, it was like 10 or 20 times, whatever it was. I've read about technical manuals and stuff where it said that the flashers could actually mess up that infrared beam that has to go across the play field which tracks whether the ball is on the on that missed magnet how did you know tell me about that and, and, and any problems that it, you might have encountered there wasn't too much with it but if somebody took a, you know a real bright light or a flashlight if the room was too well lit we tried to shield as best as we can but if the light actually got in there and interfered with it it wouldn't really know if the ball was ever there or not because the ball could be knocked off and there would still be be light shining on there I know we had that problem before with some of the ramps where they had, instead of a switch, they had optos on the ramps that would detect the ball going by. And every once in a while, the, either the general illumination lights or the flashers would set it off and make the ramp start scoring or, 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 or make it look like there's a stuck switch when there really wasn't. Hey, was there anything else about the Dracula game that you were, you know, that you thought was a pretty neat feature? Uh, well, I, everybody seemed to like the, the coffin multi-ball. We put the ball inside there and... He, Originally, we wanted him to sit up in the coffin when the balls went in, but we had too many mechanisms on the game already, plus the height restriction wasn't enough room to have the guy actually sit up because he'd be hitting the glass. But I think on the very original prototype, we had a little solenoid in there to actually make the body sit up in the coffin. Yeah, that would have been really cool. Yeah, I would have loved to see that. Yeah. I guess you can't have it all, huh? No, I know. We had to limit it somewhere. Plus, it was kind of restricted because we had the, you know, the multi-ball mechanism underneath there and the bumpers and everything else right in that same area. This wasn't enough room to put all the parts. Now, the next one that came out was kind of an odd game. The, the Popeye Saves the Earth. 
How now? Who came up with that theme? That's another python. He he completely drew up a whole thing that looked like a, like a cruise ship, like a Noah's Ark cruise ship, with some crazy little animals on there and different things. And that's another one that I did, sort of like Pinbot, where I took his artwork and developed a game around the artwork. I mean, if he had like Bluto's head, I put things on there where you can actually hit Bluto in the face, or his nose would light up, or different things on there. Now, why would Popeye want to save the Earth, though? Popeye, to me, was always about eating the spinach, beating up the bad guy, and getting the chick. I, I never would have ever thought about Popeye and saving the Earth as being two things that would ever collide. This was Python's stab at ecology, I guess, trying to save all the endangered species and, you know, the greenhouse effect and everything. So he's trying to use something that everybody knew, Popeye, and, and tie it in where he's taking all the animals and maybe starting a whole new world. Did you guys ever say anything to him about this? Uh, I don't know. Everybody thought he was kind of crazy doing it, you know. I mean, the, the game got, I guess, a lot of a lot of ribbing. You know, a lot of people made a lot of jokes about it over the years. Yeah, damn, you sold 4,200 of them, though. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of them were sold overseas because I think in, like in Germany and France, some of those countries, they like Popeye. I mean, he's been around for, what, like 70 years or something? Yeah, I mean, I, I just, um, the management didn't say anything to them, and they kind of scratched their head about the Popeye and saving the earth and those two things? The management loved Python. I mean, he could do no wrong with them. If he said he wanted to do something, he, they, they would let him do it. If he thought it would work, because, I mean, most of the time he was right. So how did he get out of Williams then, I mean, if if he was, uh, you know, so well-liked by management? Well, I think he went over, eventually he went over to work for Capcom. I think he left Williams before that. I think he wanted to go out on his own and do his own thing, what I, what I can remember the best. Now, the next one you did was Dirty Harry. How was uh, how was it working with uh, with the Dirty Harry theme? That one I like. I was always a Dirty Harry fan, and that was kind of my idea from the from the beginning to do a, a Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry game. Except we decided to do it with the younger version because he was getting too old and he hadn't really done any Dirty Harry game, any Dirty Harry movies in a while. So I tried to develop something around that. We you know, put the gun in there, shoots the balls out, and you know we had all, all the different crooks. We tried to take bits and pieces from some of the movies and the sound bites, and you know tie it in with that. Did you have to work with Clint Eastwood at all? I never got to actually meet him. Our sound guy that was doing it, I think it was, I want to say Paul. I'm trying to remember who did that now on the sounds. But he actually went out there when he was filming uh, Bridges of Madison County. And how did, uh, how did Clint Eastwood, uh, you know, respond to the whole pinball thing? He seemed to like it. I mean, we actually wrote up what we wanted him to say. And in, be- in between, when he wasn't working on the movie, he actually recorded some custom speech for us. And then the rest of it, we took this clips from all the different movies he had. We-, we took, like, every movie, watched every movie, like, five, ten times, and picked out all the lines that we liked in it that, w- that would fit perfectly in the game. But he seemed to go along with everything. I mean, he actually, like I said, he did custom stuff for us. Were you, were you happy, though, with, this- with the speech that he did give you, the custom speech? Oh, yeah, it was great. Okay, because I've heard a lot of people say that maybe he seemed a little lethargic in, in his, you know, in, in his uh, emotions or whatever. But that, that's kind of how he is, though. I mean, the way he talks is kind of slow and dry, you know. You know, feel lucky, do you, punk, you know, he just kind of hesitates when he talks, you know. 
he doesn't really put a lot of emotion into it, but yet you get the message, you know. Right, right, right. Now, the Who Done It uh game in nineteen ninety five, whose idea was it to to come up with that kind of that uh you know, uh mystery theme? That was something I worked on with Dwight Sullivan who was a programmer and he also kinda I guess we call him a co designer. That was like the first project that he worked on where he he had come up with a lot of the ideas on there. I had some ideas for some mechanisms on there, and he was thinking about doing a, a, a clue-type game, like the old you know, uh, board game. And once again, you were using stepper motors uh, to drive, um, you know, like a slot machine reels. Right. We wanted to make the game take place in a casino, so I developed some little, my actual little, own little slot machine mechanisms. I took three steppers and made my own little reels and put them on there, and then we decided to make a whole little mechanism and make it, make it a... Like not really a random feature where you can actually control the wheels on it making by making certain shots, so you can try and earn extra balls or special points. How did you feel that game came out? I think it came out came out really good because that was a game now where you're actually, I guess, trying to concentrate more on the rules than than just doing the shots. Where you're actually trying to figure out a mystery like who's who's the killer. You do certain things. You go and go to the telephone. The telephone. We'll give you a clue, you know, who it is. In regard to the, the clue, um, tie-in to Who Done It, what, why didn't they actually get the license to, to use, uh, to use Clue? And why did they go with a, this, uh, the, you know, the Who Done It name versus actually getting Clue? We never really bothered trying to get it. I mean, we, we just wanted to do our own little, like, murder mystery. It was Dwight Sullivan and I, we kind of came up with, you know, the whole idea to do this. So you mean there was never any idea to actually go and try and get a clue tie-in? No, I mean, we wanted to do something similar, like the old Who Done It, you know, movies, and a, like a similar thing to Clue, you know, what the weapon was, who the different person was that actually was the murderer. There's something different we wanted to do with pinball, you know, to make the rules a little more interesting. But but not you weren't so you never went after the license then. No, no, we didn't. We never tried. Now, the next game was uh, Jackpot, which was kind of a recycled theme of the Pinbot w- with gambling thrown in. What what brought that about? That one, I think they needed a game very quickly. That one, I didn't really do too much with it. They just took my Pinbot game and put put new rules on it and new artwork because they they needed a game to, to fill up the lines, and the other games that were in process weren't weren't really ready yet. So could you were you able to get that game out really quickly? Yeah, that game out went out really quick because the the whole game worked. I mean, all the shots were down, the parts were all designed for it. So all they really needed was a couple of months. Instead of taking nine, ten months to develop a game, they could knock it out in three months. And that was uh, Larry Demar did this one, the programming. I mean, right? Yeah, he did the programming on it, and I think Jim Patla worked on some of the rules with him. I, I had a little bit to do on. It. I didn't really do that much on it. I got credit because it was my original game design. What about the the junkyard? That one that one was all yours, right? Which one? The junkyard? Yeah, junkyard was my idea. I had an idea to do a game like that years ago where I wanted to take all the parts that were used on other games and just kind of throw them on there like a pinball junkyard. But I guess they didn't really fit in the way I wanted, so then ended up doing it where it was actual stuff you see at a junkyard, old refrigerators and old toilets and old beat-up cars and stuff. Now, there was originally a magnet underneath that kind of wrecking ball. What was the purpose of that magnet? The only purpose the magnet was there really was when the ball was, was done swinging, we wanted to grab the ball fast enough so it would be ready for the next time you wanted to hit it. 
Otherwise, the ball would just sit there and swing in the breeze for a while. So we, we put that there purposely just, just to, to stop it from swinging. Why didn't that stay in the final game? I think more for cost than anything. I think they want, you know, because it, it knocked a good good chunk out of it. Plus, I guess they realized they didn't need it. You mean that the that the wrecking ball didn't swing that much? It swung enough, but the original one I had an actual a wire cable hooked onto it where the ball would swing. But I guess after a while, the the wire would start wearing out. So we had to put putting a chain on it, and they used a mechanism to to lift the whole arm up and down instead of actually pulling on the cord. And that was right around the time I left. They, I had the game all ready to go, and that's when I got laid off over there. And they they took over and made made some changes on it after I had gone. Now, why do you think? Uh, why did you think that they uh, that they laid you off? Here you did like thirty five pretty darn successful games for them, um, and you know was it just uh, you know a bad time for pinball? Yeah, I guess they saw that it was starting to go downhill again like it was in the early 80s, and they laid off, I think, at least half of the people in engineering, probably about 75 people got laid off there. And I think a lot of it had to do with that certain people were making certain amounts of money, and they laid them off more than some of the new people they had hired. And then within two years, they closed on anyway. Right now, how did you, you know, when you uh, when when you got laid off, I mean, how, what, was your, what was your feeling? Did you see this coming? I... Did not see it coming. I mean, I knew that they might slow down a little bit, but I never saw it. I mean, there, I, I've seen a dozen layoffs while I was working there. I, I mean, it, it hit me like a brick. When Williams actually, you know, in, in 99, when they actually closed the pinball division, and, you know, you, you, you weren't there, but, I mean, you know, how, how did you know how did that how did that make you feel? I, I mean, it felt pretty bad. I mean, not as bad as when I first got hit with it, but then it looked like the door was closed permanently, and they're... There would never be a chance to get back in. You ever considered going and doing anything with Stern? I tried over there before, and mostly they want people just to work under contract for them. You design a game, and they'll pay you. But I wanted something a little more steady, where I, where I get a paycheck every week, and not just depend on, you know, if they, if they want my game and they decide they want to put it in there. Yeah, because I know Steve Ritchie and Pat Lawler, all those guys. I mean, if they don't design a game, they don't they don't get any money. But I don't know what they do in between. And so where did you end up uh, going for, you know, going and working after after Williams? Got a call from Betson and went to work for them. They're the biggest distributor in the country. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're huge. Right. And I worked there for eight and a half years. So were you pretty happy with that situation? Yeah, I was happy, happy there. I mean, I was enjoying it. I mean, I, I stayed there a long time. I mean, I mean, I stayed at Williams a long time. I thought I would have been at, at Betson a long, longer time, but they decided to make cutbacks there, too. Right. I mean, that's all I've done my whole life, basically, is work work on games. So it's been hard to find something any, anywhere else even close to it. Anything I left out of the out of the pinball timeline that you know we should throw you know throw out there? I think you covered just about everything here. Yeah, we went through all your games. Pardon me? Yeah, we went through all your games. You did thirty-five games, which is pretty impressive. Right, and those are just the ones that that they did artwork for. <laughs> well, how many games did you design that? that actually didn't get out there? I mean, there might be another 10 or 12 games that I had done play fields on it and just didn't like it and scrapped it. Sometimes I'll build up a whitewood and didn't like it, I'll throw it away because I was able, for some reason, to, de- to develop games faster than a lot of the other guys. I could take a game and get the whole thing built up, you know, with, within, a, within a month sometimes. Or sometimes the other guys would take six months just to do the drawing. 
If it didn't work, I'll, I'll make a, I'll make another one. Wait, do you, did you save any of those white woods? Nah, most of them we, we scrapped them. They weren't, they weren't worth saving. I would have made it into a game. Right, right. So was there any, um, was there any that actually got names that, you know, that we don't know about that are kind of undocumented? Well, the only other game really was the Cosmic Gunfight wasn't Cosmic Gunfight originally. It was called Dragonfly, and we actually had artwork for it. And why didn't it get made as Dragonfly? I think, I don't know, somebody in management or somebody when we had it on test or whatever, some, someone didn't like something about it. It kind of looked like, almost like a, like a Silver Surfer type character with his arms out though with, with wings. It was like a man with, with Dragonfly wings on the glass. It was kind of, kind of a, you know, real unusual. Who did that artwork? Uh, Connie Mitchell. Do you still have the artwork? I don't know what happened. I used to have a couple of the back glasses at Williams, and when I left there, I left a lot of stuff behind. So people just grabbed everything up that I had in my office there. But I had a couple of them in different colors. We tried, you know, one character that was kind of reddish color, another one that was blue. We did them in all different colors, too. And I wish I had kept some of the stuff now. How did you feel about the cosmic gunfight? It was un- unusual. I mean, it was an okay game that was back during that period when everything was just really slow. You know, it didn't do as well as it could have. You know, if it had been maybe, made maybe at a different time, but, I mean, the theme was okay. Yeah, we, we really didn't talk about the 1983 time fantasy either. How, you know, what was your perception on that game? That game was another one too. We were just trying to make, it's just a simple, low maintenance, you know, inexpensive game that had good, good rules on it. Because that was the time when I said pinball really wasn't doing really well, so we figured at least somebody can buy a game and get it for a good price, and they don't have to keep spending money fixing it. Maybe they'll buy more games, you know, instead of buying a video game. Do you think that theory worked? Uh, it worked fairly well for its time. I'm trying to think what that one sold there, Time Fantasy. Yeah, it didn't sell a lot. It was only it sold about 600. Six, like 600 games only. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, nothing was selling even a thousand. Yeah, and that, that whole era from 82 to 84, you know, it was all three-digit sales numbers, it seemed. Right. Yeah, which would, yeah, would really put a damper on everything. I mean, they barely, barely broke even building these games. Right, it was just, you were just keeping everybody employed. Mm-hmm. All right, well, cool, Barry. I really appreciate the time. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it was great talking to you. I, I mean, you've designed some amazing games through the years. I mean, did some... Absolutely great stuff in them. I mean, what I should have done is added up all the production numbers that I had. And I mean, I bet, you know, if I do, you, you sold, you know, over a hundred thousand games easily of, of that you have designed. Yeah, I know. That was quite a bit. Yeah, you did, you know, some amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing games. You know, I, I mean, there's people that, you know, I, and I hear about all the time, you know, oh, Space Shuttle, that's my favorite game. Oh, Cyclone. Man, I, I love that game. And then, and bad cats, you know, I hear all kinds of stuff, and you know, people that, you know, and like, you know, the the Dracula. I mean, that was like a a, a late buy in my buying of uh, Williams games. But man, that's a great game. That really, I mean, it's dark, but it's really, really is a fun game. Well, the movie was dark. That's why, you know, but it, I, I enjoyed the game. I enjoyed working at it. I enjoyed playing it. That was, you know, it's another one of my favorites. Really dark game. I remember playing it the first time. It kind of, I kind of felt dirty after I played it. <laughs>
but it was, you know, it kind of really grows on you, especially that missed multi-ball thing. That is, like I said, that's one of the coolest pinball toys I, I've ever seen. No. Well, again, Barry, I really, really appreciate your time, and thank you again. Oh, thank you, too. I'd like to thank Barry Ausler for joining us today on TopCast and sharing his stories on all his different pinball games that he designed for Williams from 1978 to 1996. Again, I really appreciate Barry's time, and uh, I hope you can all join us again for another edition of TopCast.